So last week, to start my message, I quoted Jesus, which I do on occasion as a pastor, just so you're aware, I, you know, tend to go there sometimes to the source material. So I had this great verse that I found that Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, it's verse 19, it reads, stand firm and you will win life. Well, when I said that verse, of course, I see my family, because I'm always kind of like looking over my family, and they're, they're furiously jotting down notes, and I'm just thinking, oh, this is wonderful. My, my family is receiving the word of the Lord. So then after worship, then we're kind of chatting together, and my, my family says this, which I, I'm still not entirely quite sure how to process this. They said, that verse was so good, we had to check and make sure Jesus really said it. I, 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 mean, I mean, how do I even begin to make sense of that? Like, like, one, like, do you think I'm in the habit of, like, making things up that Jesus said? Um, like, and, and, but beyond that, like, what else would Jesus have said? Like, would he be like, stand firm? Or don't, whatever, you know, who cares, you know, doesn't really matter, or, you know, like, or don't stand firm, give up, you know, throw in the towel. I mean, what do you think Jesus is? Of course he's going to say, stand firm and you will win life, because that is what we are talking about as we move into 2020 now. We want to catch a vision for the life that Jesus is calling us to, inviting us to, empowering us for living into. And so we are going to be going through this um, series here, uh, the next uh, for January, about getting clarity, just getting clarity around what is going to be our wins for the year uh, and for life. And today we're going to get into really specifically what I think is Jesus's big win for our lives, for his church, for all of us. Now, let me just recap a bit to bring us up to speed so you know where we are at. Last week, we looked to the Apostle Paul and his outline of giving us some wins in his life, and he has this great analogy where he talks about pressing on toward the goal and winning the prize, and so that's where we get this whole imagery of going for the win, and I probably spent too much time pulling that apart because the application was really quite direct and, and quite clear, and that is name your win. Say what your win is going to be in and for Jesus Christ. So I gave you some takeaway, some homework, start of the year, first Sunday, and, you know, really, I hope you're working on that homework. By the way, some people actually already came up to me before worship and were showing me you're doing your homework. You got, you got an A, Sylvia, fantastic, so gold star, whatever. So, so the first part was say, why don't you just name seven things that you want to characterize your life? Even think about your eulogy, kind of morbid, but can be very helpful. What are words that you hope people are going to use to describe your life? And then start living into those words. If you want people to say you were kind, well, be kind to people. If you want people to say, man, you know, she was generous. Well, you're going to have to start practicing generosity towards others. One of my words that I said that I'm going to be working on is patience. I also want to tell you that that night at dinner, my family says to me, so you are working on patience. And they just had a laugh riot talking about my working on patience. I mean, oh, they just had quite the yarn that they spun around my spiritual gift here of patience. If I was a cartoon at that point, you would have seen steam, like, you know, like just exiting through my ears. 
And after they all had their, and I was like, Jesus, I did not say a word. I did not open my mouth. I was like, I am so like Jesus right now. I am not saying a word in my defense. I just, at the end of it, I just said, I think I'm practicing patience right now. So, so um, we are living into these qualities and characteristics that we want to define us. Then, of course, I gave you five areas of life, really the most important areas of life, and just, again, encourage you to kind of name your win. What are you going to steer, aim, direct your life towards in your faith, in your family, in your key relationships, in your finances, in your work or your education, and in your health? All of that is online. It's in the program. And you can be living into that, working on that. It can change. It can grow. It can ebb. It can flow. Get into a group and talk about it with your people and work on what those wins are. Well, today we're going to now move into what is Jesus's big win for us. And it is really this simple. Jesus's win for your life is not to just get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you. Jesus's big win is not to get you up and into heaven, but to get heaven and the kingdom of God into you. I love the way Mark starts his gospel. Mark, the shortest of our gospels, the stories of Jesus Christ told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke just jumps right into it, and he says in chapter 1, verse 14, after John, that is the cousin of Jesus who was preparing the way, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is far away. The kingdom of God is way out there. The kingdom of God is on the horizon. It's some unforeseen time where you can just bide your time and muddle through. No, 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 no none of that. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Matthew as he moves into then the ministry of Jesus in chapter 4, he puts it this way in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I'm going to say it a million different ways, probably during the course of this uh, message, uh, so that it starts to sink in. Because as clear, as simple as it is, that Jesus' mission was not to simply just get us to heaven, but to get heaven down to us, to get the kingdom into us and working through us. We're just going to work this over for the next couple minutes, friends. This is Jesus' big win for our lives, is to get us as citizens of the kingdom. The mission of Jesus was not to say that heaven is far off in a land far, far away but it is here and now it has come close. You can reach out, you can take hold of it. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Take hold of me, take hold of it. Begin living into this new reality and this new way of life that I am offering to you. The mission of the church then is not to preach. Get to Jesus, get saved, and then bide your time until you die. The mission of the church is not to say we are simply going to give people their ticket to heaven card and they will cash it in at the end of their life and whatever they do between now and then doesn't really matter. The mission of the church is not to preach or to teach. A theology says we're just going to give you the magic words 
and you can do whatever what you want with your life, but at the end of days, as long as you say, Jesus is Lord, then all will work out for you. This is antithetical to the example, to the ministry, to the mission, to the calling of Jesus on our lives. We just came through the Christmas season. The Christmas season, more than anything else perhaps, should highlight and put in front of us and call us to this new reality that God came to us and brought heaven with him. That God loved us so much that he did not remain far off, but came near to us and began a kingdom movement, a revolution of heaven invading earth. Whenever Jesus was born, he was proclaimed the newborn king. Whenever wise men from the east came to worship Jesus, they went to the palace and they said, we are seeking out the one who was born the king. At the end of Jesus' life, when he died on a cross for our sins, for our salvation, to defeat death, to rise to new life, to invite us into this new way of living, it was placed on a plaque above his head, here is the king. We don't even begin to understand this mission, this calling, this new revolution way of life until we understand that Jesus is the king. He is bringing in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and we get to experience and live into it right here and right now. The way that this began to really take shape and form in my life, I think began through simply praying the Lord's Prayer. It was asked of me after last week's sermon, what is your rhythm, what is your routine, what are some of your words, and I talked about it with my group, and I'm not going to get into that right now, because that would, could take over right here and right now, but I will say this about my rhythm and my routine and my discipline for trying to get centered and focused and get clarity each and every day. Each and every day, I start with the Lord's Prayer, and it usually takes me about three times getting through it before I really center and focus in on that. I then recite the Apostles' Creed because each one of those tenets is a springboard to truths revealed to us in the Scripture. And they highlight things for me that I might not normally or naturally want to remember or think about, like Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, and I need to lean into those remembrances. I then have a list of seven affirmations, my words that I go through. I then have some memory verses. I'm always working on a collection of memory verses, and they're always changing, and they're always moving. I recently had a great discussion with somebody talking about how meaningful the armor of God from Ephesians 6 has been to them, and I thought, boy, it's been a long time since I considered that. So I've been remembering that armor of God and putting on all those pieces of protection um, in my morning routine. But more than anything else, it is that Lord's Prayer that highlights this kingdom of God here and now. Because every time we remember those words, we start. And you don't have to say them with me, but I hope this will be familiar with many. And if it's not familiar to you, become familiar with it. We begin our prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
N.T. Wright puts it this way, our culture is so fixated on dying and going to heaven when the whole of Scripture, when the whole of Scripture is about heaven coming to earth. Our culture is so fixated, and I would say this, the culture of church, by and large, in the end of the 20th century, and moving into the 21st century here, has become fixated on salvation being a ticket to heaven that we cash in when we die, rather than a way of life that we experience here and now. My hope for us is that today we will begin to see our lives and our church and the work of God as becoming, in a sense, satellite campuses of heaven. That each and every person, every man, woman, and child called to Jesus Christ, in a sense, becomes themselves a very satellite campus of heaven. That as the kingdom of heaven invades a life, that that life begins to emanate and resonate with the very work of the kingdom of God. So that everywhere that person goes becomes a little outpost, a little signpost, a little flag staked in the ground for the kingdom of God. That we make our homes little satellite campuses of heaven where the will and the work of God can be made known in marriages, in raising children, and extending out to neighbors. That every time we go to our places of work, that God has a little flag planted for the kingdom of God to begin to grow in that business uh, or that store uh, or that commerce area or, or what, whatever it is. That every time we go into the community and we eat in a restaurant or interact with friends or, or whatever that we're doing, we're, we're claiming ground for the, heaven, for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God to be revealed and to make itself known. I think about, I, I feel like we see it and all these movies now, um, it seems like this thing in movies now that there's always a virus. That seems to be like a common theme in so many of these things. And this virus sort of begins to spread. And they always show this kind of CDC map, right? This kind of Center for Disease Control map. And, and the virus starts in Washington. And I don't know, and then it goes to Moscow. And then it goes to Brazil, whatever it is. And if, is this resonating with anybody here? Let me get, give me like a nod ahead or something. You, you've kind of seen those maps kind of as the virus spread. And oh no, the zombies are going to take over the world. Well, what if that was the movement of the kingdom of heaven through our lives? Hey, all right, all right, it's working with somebody, <laughs> amen. That we are just spreading the kingdom of God everywhere that we go. And the kingdom of God takes hold of hearts and minds and lives everywhere that we go. If your vision for the Christian life for the reason that Jesus came, and the calling that he has on our lives, and the whole point of the church is only that we preach a gospel that says, proclaim Jesus at the end of your life, and you will get into heaven, then your gospel is far too small. It's not wrong, but it's too small. It's far too limited, and it's not very compelling. <laughs> The mission, the call, the kingdom of heaven is to capture hearts and minds and souls, to change us, to transform us from the inside out, and to begin bringing that transformation to all of the world. Our vision of the kingdom of heaven needs to grow that we begin to understand just how much access and empowerment we have through the Holy Spirit to become these kingdom agents.
I've used the analogy before, which came about 25 years ago through a book called Resident Aliens, to begin to picture and see our lives as resident aliens, that our citizenship, our salvation, our security, our eternity is with God in heaven. But for here and now, we reside with that, working its way through us, everywhere that God calls us to be and to begin to access that power that we have living as agents of the kingdom of God. Another silly example, I think I've used this one before, but in my generation, when I was in high school, I remember how desperately I wanted my MTV. Who else here wanted their MTV? Anybody? Anybody? All right, three people willing to admit they actually, nobody else here ever watched the music video. I get it. So I was the only one. I desperately wanted my MTV when I was in high school. My friends all had their MTV. It seemed the whole world had their MTV, but we did not have MTV. And I nightly told my parents at the dinner table, I want my MTV. And then finally, with one night, my dad said, I do not understand what you keep talking about. I was like, listen, all my friends have this box now, and it goes on their TV, and now they get like, they don't get the 10 channels we get. They said they get like 30 channels. Can you imagine that, kids? 30 channels. It was unbelievable. Well, I didn't have it. I desperately wanted it. And he said, I'm paying for cable. I said, well, we don't have cable. And this went back and forth. So finally, we as a family, this really happened, we go to the living room, and we go to the TV, and I say, see, we have no box. We don't have that cable box. And by the way, this is like a TV in its own wooden cabinet and all that stuff there. So, yeah, some of you, some of you, some of you still have that, maybe. Um, so, so we look on this TV, and, and we look in the back, and there's this cable coming from the wall into the TV. So we're like, maybe there is cable in this thing. I remember we open up this little panel on the front, and there's a little toggle switch there. And one side said antenna, and the other, there it is. Somebody's getting their MTV right there now. One side said antenna, and the other said cable. And we just flipped that switch. And all of a sudden, I had my MTV. Oh, you know, there you go. All that to say, I'm hoping today might flip a switch for some of us to say that we are still living off of analog. We're still living off of the simple, most basic airwaves. It says, well, I got Jesus and I'm saved. I guess that's good enough to say you have access to so much more of the kingdom. You have access to the power that raised Christ from the dead to raise you to new life and to lead you into this life of kingdom outpost living. Now, here is where my sermon this week took two radically different directions. There's one sermon that waxes on quite eloquently for several pages about the theology of the inaugurated eschatology of the kingdom of God. That would have put all of you to sleep, though, I'm pretty sure about that. This sermon also took the direction of simply telling my story and my awakening. So this is about as narrative as I'll ever be in a sermon. This is probably about as self-narrative as I ever want to be. But I'm going to tell you a bit about my conversions. Not so much that my story is so important, but that in my story you might see images, echoes, reflections of your own. And then together we might come into the larger story of the kingdom of God.
So I want to just take a few moments here to tell you about my conversions. I say conversions because the fact of the matter is we have many conversions in life. We have many moments in our lives where I believe God is calling us to move further, to move deeper in our connection to Him, our relationship with Him, our walk with Him. I know that there's many more conversions that can happen because the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth talks about this crazy story about a guy he knows 14 years earlier that was taken up into what he called the third heaven. So there were people that were even further along than the Apostle Paul. He says he could not tell that story. So if it ever happens to me, I can't tell the story. But I will tell you if it ever happens to me, and we'll take it from there. But let me tell you about my life and my growing up here. My first conversion started as a child who grew up in the church. I was one of those kids that just was drugged to church every Sunday in the vacation Bible school. And our life as a family really revolved around the Lord, revolved around Jesus. Before I forget to say it, let me say this too, in case it kind of gets lost in the stories, I kind of go deeper into it. I'm immensely grateful. I am immensely grateful for being raised in the church for growing up in what now would be called an evangelical Christian upbringing. I am very grateful for the example of my parents who know and love the Lord and are still a wonderful example uh, for me and for my family and for, for, for many today. But when you grow up in the church, of course, you're inviting a different or unique set of baggage that young people have to work through. Well, anyways, I grew up in the church. And I didn't just grow up in any church. I grew up in what I now like to call a really Billy Graham kind of church. Every single Sunday, every single service ended with this opportunity. You all now can close your eyes and bow your heads. Is anybody being taken back to their background right now? Close your eyes, bow your heads, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to say a prayer. And you will be led in the sinner's prayer. Oh, and we already have a hand, and we're not, we haven't gotten to the hand yet. We haven't gotten to the hand yet. So you'd be led an opportunity to confess your sins and call on Jesus as your Savior. Now let me say something about this. I have to be theological for, 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 for just a moment. Sometimes you'll hear people say, this is the end-all and be-all of the Christian faith, to say the sinner's prayer. And then you'll have people say, the sinner's prayer doesn't even appear in the Bible. Well, guess what? Both are wrong. We should all read our Bibles. Jesus clearly calls people to repent, to turn, and to call on him as Lord and Savior. But Jesus is clearly calling us to more than just repenting and turning and saying, you're Savior. So never buy into short changed, short-sighted little truisms that people try and throw at you. Well, anyways, I grew up in this tradition, and it was around about sixth grade where it made sense. Okay, God is, and God makes himself known to us through Jesus, his son, and I call Jesus as Savior, and then I'm a part of the life of God. It made enough sense that one Sunday, again, around about sixth grade, I raised my hand and said that prayer. And then afterwards, something else happened. After you said that prayer, then the choir came back up, and we began to sing. And some of you know, what's the song? If you grew up in the Billy Graham kind of church, just as, I heard somebody was, just as I am. So we'd start singing, just as I am. And you would have the opportunity to go forward and make your 
faith public. And so I remember that one Sunday, I tugged on my mom's sleeve, and I said, hey, I think I'm ready to do that. And she burst into tears, and it was a wonderful moment. And we sang, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You would, we, would sing that ver- we would sing that song until somebody came forward, by the way. I mean, like, you just kept singing verses until somebody came forward. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Actually, verse 5. Verse 5 is the best. Verse 5 goes like, like this. Just as I am, thou will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. So I went forward, and I made my profession of faith. And I got myself, as they say, saved, right? That sustained me for many years. Interestingly enough, in my own life, I was one of those kids that I I never really rebelled from the faith. But as I grew and got older, I wanted to go deeper into my faith. It was in my late teens, early 20s, I can't be exactly sure of the timing of it, but I remember the occasion that it happened. My second conversion started, caught me a bit by surprise, perhaps we'll put it that way. My second conversion started, I narrow it down to this moment. I was having lunch with some friends, and these two girls began to talk about their relationship and their walk with Jesus in a way that seemed very foreign to me, and very different from what I experienced. And one of the girls at one point put it this succinctly. She said, even if there is no heaven, following Jesus is worth it right now. And that's when I called an audible. I said, hold on a second. (laughs) You're telling me you are so close with Jesus right now that if all there is is this material world and we just die, that it would be worth following Jesus in your life right here and right now. He means that much to you. And she said, that is exactly what I'm saying. And I said, you're insane. Because if there is no heaven, then, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to call it out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for me. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sorry to my own family. But I said, I said if there is no heaven, I think I'm going to go all in in this world right now. I want to get rich or die trying. I mean, I want it now. And they very lovingly said, in so many words, oh George, (laughs) you are so missing the point. You are so missing what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Essentially what they're saying to me is your vision of the kingdom of God of heaven is so small and so far off and so out there that you've not experienced it in here in a way that has transformed you or changed you. And so began a much slower and longer conversion where I began that process of saying, what will it look like to begin to allow the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to come into my life and to change and to transform me from the inside out? What would it look like to have a closeness, a union with Jesus Christ that is so fulfilling and so sustaining that if there is still yet nothing else, it would in fact be worth it right here and right now. Now let me say this on that. I believe there is something far greater yet to come. I do believe there is a reality that we are yet to experience and live into when Jesus Christ returns. 
And when he returns, he will bring with him the consummation of the very kingdom of God. And heaven and earth will collide. And all sin and sorrow and death and despair and every tear will be wiped away. And we will live in perfect union and communion with God forevermore. But we should only want perfect union and communion with God, access to him and God's access to us, without any interference, without any hiding. It would only make sense to want that for all of eternity if we want that now. <laughs> if I don't want Jesus in every part, every area, every reality of my life right here and now, why would I want that for all of eternity? And so I began this process of inviting the kingdom of God to become my deepest reality, my all in all my everything. My first conversion then, got to check my time. We're going to wrap this up here. My first conversion then was a conversion to Jesus as my Savior. My second conversion then was my conversion understanding Jesus as my Lord. And as my Lord, he would have access to all of my life. Now, this was a very contentious debate, actually, in the middle of the 20th century. Is there such thing as saving faith only through calling on Jesus as Savior, or does saving faith require the lordship of Jesus Christ? Let me say two things about that. Sadly, those who were promoting saving faith won the debate. Meaning, it seems that what won the debate was this idea that you only need to call Jesus as Savior and you are good to go. And that is true. And that can sustain you. And that can be enough. There is a thief crucified on a cross next to Jesus, who by all accounts, we can surmise, seemed to live a life far from God, in opposition to God, not loving God, and certainly not loving neighbor, as he died on a thief on a cross. But in his last hour, he called on Jesus. And Jesus gave him a promise that he would be in paradise with him that very day. So there is saving faith. But it is sad that that one today, not because it is wrong, but because it is far too simple and far too small and doesn't tell the beauty of both sides of the coin that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. It shrinks the great pearl of infinite value that Jesus is only able to save because he is Lord of all. And because Jesus is Lord of all, and a good Lord, and a loving Lord, and a merciful Lord, and a gracious Lord, he desires to save. You see, you can't really separate and divorce the two. Jesus can save because he is Lord, and because he is a good and gracious and loving Lord, he desires to save his children who are lost, who are broken, who are hurting, who are calling out to him. And so what I want to do is invite you to the fullness of the gospel, of the kingdom of God and heaven, and that he is both Savior and that he is Lord. Because in Mark 10, a man comes to Jesus. We could go to many examples of scripture, but in Mark 10, a man comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, what must I do, and his words are very specific, to inherit the kingdom. 
What must I do to become a part of this salvation project, the kingdom of God? And here's what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say in Mark 10, well, just use my name as the magic words when you stand before God, the Father, and all is going to work out for you. No, he says, you know the commands. What are they? And he begins to rattle off a way of living that shows evidence of the work of the kingdom of God. He says, you know the commands, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And he says, I have done all of these things. And yet he knew in his own reality, his own experience, that the kingdom wasn't his truest reality. And so Jesus says, one thing that you lack then, sell all your possessions and follow me. Jesus was able to call out the idol, the thing standing between this man and the kingdom. And it was his trust in his riches, in his wealth. Now, there's a lot we could do to unpack this story, of course, but what Jesus doesn't give him is a simple idea of the gospel being only one-sided, just call on me as Savior. What he was inviting him to do is to know him and follow him and trust him as Lord of his life. So, let me conclude by this. First, if you are a follower of Christ, you should want this kind of life. If you are already calling yourself a Christian or a follower of Christ, you should want this kind of life. You should want more of your Savior, more of the Lord Jesus in your life. You should desire to be a disciple, to follow him and to bring all areas of your life under his lordship so that you are fully committed to him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you are saying you're a Christian, you're saying you're a follower of Christ, by definition, we should want more of the Savior. We should want the Savior to have complete access to our life. We should want no veil, nothing between us and our relationship with Him. And so this vision of the kingdom should be our vision as followers of Christ. But let me say this. If you are not a Christian, you want Christians to actually live like this. Right now, in America, people self-reporting who they want least, so let me be clear on this, who they want least as a neighbor is an evangelical Christian. People want least of all to have their neighbor to be an evangelical Christian because the cartoonish parody of Christians today is that all we do is walk around saying we are saved and everybody else is going to hell. It is the Ned Flanders syndrome of current popular culture. But if you are not a Christian, you should want your neighbor to be a Christian who lives like this. Because if your neighbor is a Christian who lives like this, now we'll just insert ourselves. If we are Christians who live like this, then we become the most loving people of all. We become the most caring people of all. We become the most gracious people of all. We become the most sacrificial people of all. We become the neighbors who are seeking the kingdom of God, who are seeking justice in this world, who are seeking the kingdom and allowing it to invade our world through our lives. We become the kind of neighbor that everybody desires when we become kingdom people. But third, if you are considering being a Christian, if you are somebody wondering what this faith is all about, I would tell you, think long and hard and pray about it. 
Because what Jesus doesn't simply want is to give you your ticket to heaven and to let you muddle through life until you die or he comes again. But he is wanting to become Lord of your life, to have complete ownership and access to you, to do his kingdom work in you and through you for all the days of your life until you die or until he returns. Does that make sense? <laughs> kind of a deep, kind of a more of a theological one. I tell the story of my life, not to make an example of it, but to say perhaps you see yourself in that story as well. Perhaps you have already made that transition to knowing Jesus as Lord, and you've surrendered him fully. But if your vision of him is far too categorized simply as Savior, and you're waiting for something on the horizon, I want to tell you that you have access to it right here and right now. So what I want to do is I want to invite the team to come on up and get ready to take us out with some worship. But what we're going to do is we're going to have a good old-fashioned altar call right now. <laughs> we're not going to sing just as I am. But you might want to bow your head, and you might want to actually close your eyes, because it's not a bad thing to take moments in our lives to surrender ourselves to God. And maybe you've never done this before. Maybe this is the day where you say, I want to know you as my Savior. I want to experience the forgiveness of my sins and knowing the life that you offer me, Jesus. But maybe you want to take it further and you want to declare him today as Lord over your life and to say from this day forward, I want to seek you with all of my heart and all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength and allow my life to become a kingdom outpost, this flag staked in the ground, claiming heaven here and now to be working through my life. Because when we catch a glimpse of Jesus and who he really is, friends, let me, let me, let me end on this and then we're going to say this prayer. Because when we catch a glimpse of Jesus, when people caught a glimpse of Jesus, they would run through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. When they caught a glimpse of Jesus, they would, they would climb on a roof and dig through to get close to him, right? When people caught a glimpse of Jesus, they would do just about anything. They would climb out on a limb and humiliate themselves to see him passing by. When we catch a glimpse of Jesus and the kingdom that he offers and invites us to be a part of, we will go to any length, to any extreme, to go to any cost to take hold of him. And so let me pray for us now. And you can pray this. And, and you know what? I'm not going to do the hand thing, and we're not going to do the altar call thing. I don't have time for that now. But we're going to pray, and we're going to worship. Heavenly Father, maybe there is a man or a woman or a young person here today that hearing the simple beauty of the gospel, that you came to us, that you died for us, that you rose to new life for us, and that we can have life in you. We can put our faith and our trust and confess you now as our Savior and know that we have life. And so maybe for the man or the woman, again, the young person, we pray to you as our Savior, that we would have life in you. But maybe for some of us, we are ready 
to go further with you now. And it's not that it's not enough that you are Savior, but because you are Savior, we now want to make you Lord. And so we surrender our whole life to you, heart, mind, soul, and strength, that heaven may invade our lives now, that the kingdom of God may invade our lives right now, that the prayer that you taught us to pray becomes the prayer of our lives. Your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life right here and right now. And may you change me, make me, mold me more and more into your perfect image and likeness, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.